This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling-Biru. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me and welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. Maureen Ryan has been covering the entertainment industry as a critic and reporter for three decades. She's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, she's written for The Hollywood Reporter and The New York Times, and was the chief television critic for Variety. And she has a background of many years of tough reporting on inclusion and misconduct in Hollywood. Her excellent new book and New York Times bestseller is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. The book is an investigation into the patterns of abuse, misconduct, racism, and sexism in Hollywood. I'm honored to have her with me on the show to talk about the book. We talk about conflating abuse with art. I'm producer Scott Rudin and director David O. Russell, rampant racism behind the scenes of the TV show Lost, and more. Maureen Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm and I'm very grateful for the kind words. Thanks. Um, for me, one of the things that's so powerful about your reporting, and you've been covering this industry for three decades, is that you're passionate about TV and film. And your meticulous reporting into the problematic sides of the industry, the bad behavior it really comes first from a place of passion. And I really appreciate that. Like chapter 14 is called Mad as Hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. You're a modern Howard Beale of Next <laughs> Network. <laughs> um, what was your personal impetus to write this? Well, I, I, for most of my career, I did features and all kinds of reporting or even opinion pieces, but I was primar primarily a critic. And when you're a critic, you're looking what is the structure of this episode? What is this? What is the meaning of this film? What were they trying to accomplish? And I actually think that this is a natural outgrowth of me having written about TV and film for so long that the longer you go, the, the bigger shapes that you see, if you will, the bigger patterns, uh, the repetitive nature of certain things, you know, and that's not a bad thing. Well, why are there so many spy films? Because spy films are exciting. Like that's not a bad thing, but I just like thinking about the why in the foundations and the context of why certain things happen over and over again. So I had done a lot of tough reporting on the industry even before Me Too, because I do think it's important the role that journalism plays in fostering accountability, frankly. You know, there are many people in many industries, whether it's high tech, you know, technology, government, um, finance, all that kind of thing where people speaking out is can can result in catastrophic cons consequences and and again that can happen in any industry wherever you work at a department store or a restaurant or a bank whatever but in hollywood it's particularly true that when you're critiquing a tv show or film just as a work you can often say things that the people associated with it can't say or won't say because it would be too risky. So as I saw these patterns, 
you know, I really saw for many years the patterns of who gets to make things, who gets to be the director, the creator, the high-level producer, who gets to have those roles influences what we saw. So I did a lot of reporting around that. And then when Me Too happened, you know, it was kind of at the right place at the right time. I, I was established in the industry. I knew a lot of people. And I guess something that I'm proud of is that people saw me as someone that they could go to, whether or not a story would result, but I could be a resource for them. And so I've had many conversations over the years where people, I explained to them how journalism would work, what what might happen, how I would, what I would need. And, you know, not everyone wants to go forward, but I kind of was there as a resource or someone to consult during that very chaotic and um, stressful time for a lot of people. Because really at the beginning of Me Too, and even for a few years into it, there was this incredible sense of urgency amongst the people I talked to because they were afraid that what Hollywood does, typically does would happen again. You know, let's open the door to this conversation and then it will slam shut. But over here, we'll be distracting you with something shiny and pretty. So you won't notice that the door just slammed shut again. Mm -hmm. So I had done a lot of those stories. I thought they were important and I, have no regrets about having done them because I met a lot of fantastic sources and people who were really brave, often on behalf of their colleagues. You know, I often heard, I'm scared. I don't know what to do, but I really want to have my colleagues back and my coworkers back, which is inspiring. And I still hear that. Um, but I just began to notice that there just seemed to be this, a fatigue about misconduct stories. Mm-hmm. And I understand that fatigue. Because having having reported many of them, you know, it's tiring. It's tiring. And then, you know, at a certain point, I began to feel, if I feel like I'm in this Groundhog Day loop and I'm reporting the same story over and over again four years into this, then not to take away from the bravery of the people who are coming to me and the wonderful values that they're demonstrating by coming to an array of reporters to uncover this production or that film or that TV set as being, you know, hotbeds of misconduct or abuse. I understood that it was important to do those particular situations and and shed light on them. But then I also began to think I need to do more to shed light on how the system is almost designed for these outcomes to happen. If you tell people over a period of time or make it known that if you acquire power in Hollywood and make money for people in Hollywood, no one will meaningfully put limits on the power that you have. And then you also conflate abuses of power and exploitation of various kinds You conflate that with artistry or creativity or passion or an artistic temperament or all these terms that we've I've used and many of us have used then what you're doing is setting the stage for this to be the normal set of state of affairs for for these terrible situations or rampant abuses of power to keep happening 
Because this is something I've really thought about a lot in, in, in my career, and you really put this in the book, um, the conflating of abuse with great art, the bully. What is the myth of the necessary monster? Well, I mean, it really goes back, I, I didn't go back this far in my book, but it goes back to, you know, La Boheme, or, you know, that I think in some ways in the 19th century, we began to codify as a, in the West, this culture of if someone is a, is an art, has an artistic drive or a creative spirit, they're going to have problems. They're going to be mentally um, perhaps afflicted or uh, ha they have a difficult life, put it that way. <laughs> and then the outgrowth of that was, well, whatever difficulties they have due to that artistic temperament, or that creative drive, I think without a lot of us signing off on this, the transfer was made to, well, they have to take those things out on other people. And it's enveloped by, certainly by the American entertainment industry in this haze of glamour. Hmm. And I cannot tell you the number of actors who I've talked to, actors whose names you know, you might assume that th their life is a round of glamorous parties and premieres and unfettered creative collaboration where they feel honored and respected. And they don't, you know, like it does not matter what position you're in. Typically the way that it has worked in Hollywood is that even if you are perceived to have a glamorous life, a well-compensated life or some kind of special existence because you're a celebrity, quite often those people can still be in difficult work situations or have to put up with a lot of things that they can't speak about because it would wreck their career. Yeah, you have some concrete examples of that. I was thinking about when you're speaking of this, David O. Russell, for example, the director right. of Three Kings, um, American Hustle. Um, there's a video of him being horribly abusive to Lily Tomlin. There's stories of, you know, choking incidents with George Clooney and AD, Amy Adams has talked about this. I mean, these are famous people. You can just imagine what's happening to the other people on his and set. It, exactly. And why are these famous people allowing this? Why is he still working? You know, to be honest, the, the honest answer would be, I don't, because, no, here's the answer, actually, um, because the studios are enabling him to continue to work. And now you might say, oh, Mo Ryan, are you saying David O. Russell should never work again? Well, I tell you what, if I was the head of a studio that was bankrolling his next movie, I would have three people standing near him at all times to make sure he never mistreated anyone. And if he did, he would be gone. You know, I'm just saying a lot of times what the people at the top are doing is saying, well, I myself, the studio executive, I treat my assistant well, and I'm not treating anyone badly. Well, if you give this guy the budget to make another movie, he made Amy Adams cry daily on set. This is something she has spoken publicly about. I don't know that if I walked into a room that the, the director Christopher Nolan was in and put him in a headlock, that I wouldn't end up behind bars. You know, maybe rightly so. <laughs> But it's just insane to me that the, the 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 dodge that a lot of people in Hollywood want to make is this. Well, I didn't do it. Okay, but if you are enabling the behavior to continue, and for that behavior to continue to 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 be taken out 
put on everyone from the star of the movie to the lowest level crew member. I think that that complicity is equally damaging in a way, you know, it's just yeah. is different. And, and the thing is that the part about the enabling is that multiple people have to make that happen. Multiple people have to decide that here's a director or here's this person or creator or actor. There is a public record or even a private trustworthy accounts of this person's negative behavior. They have shown no interest in changing that negative damaging behavior. It takes multiple people for anyone to get a creative project off the ground. TV shows and films cost tens of millions of dollars, most of them. So the complicity is a pervasive issue. And I'm really, if, if I'm glad about the reception to the book for many reasons, but that's one of them. Yeah, It's not enough to say, when my, when my um, assistant brought me my coffee order today, it was the wrong order, but I didn't scream at that assistant and make that person feel diminished and humiliated. That, okay, that's good. Like that's a baseline for human behavior. We should all just be decent to each other. But it, I'll bring up another example. If Disney was willing to publicly, as a corporation, say negative things about Scarlett Johansson, one of the biggest stars in the world, because she said, I was not compensated properly for my film Black Widow, um, to the point where she had she had to like bring a lawsuit. What are they willing to do to anyone else? Anything at all. And so the culture of silence, I think, is one in which abuse and misconduct thrives. We've seen it in churches. We've seen it in sporting um, arenas. We've seen it in so many different parts of our culture. When silence is all but mandatory, that is where the worst people and the most damaging people and their enablers thrive. And so I'm just one of those Klieg lights that you see outside of a Hollywood premiere. I'm trying to put a light on these dynamics because we can't pretend that me too fixed it it didn't and if if even scarlett johansson or amy adams or i mean if they if they can't even they're speaking out and that doesn't mm -hmm. even help i mean can just imagine because you have another really horrific example in scott rudin um which you write about whose bullying was so traumatic i mean throwing, you know, chairs, um, verbal abuse, it even led to a suicide that you write about in your book. Who was Scott Rudin and what happened there? Well, he was, he's a, he's a well-known producer for decades in the industry. And, you know, this is one of those not even hiding in plain sight, just in plain sight things. You know, the, the profiles that were written of, of him over the years, I read them and there was a very similar quality to them. And it was oh, well, he has an explosive, one person called his behavior explosive verve, which I'm like, what kind of nonsense phrase <laughs> is that? And what's interesting is that it was quite often glorified. And these reporters would go to former Scott Rudin employees. You know, he he's produced a number of Oscar winning or Oscar, Oscar nominated films, Broadway shows, TV shows. And he's viewed as valuable in many ways because He's adapting, you know, the hours, a, a high level literary novel that many A-list actresses starred in. So he's viewed as someone who is helping to get high quality projects made or at least get things made at all, because that is difficult. It is definitely difficult. 
But his abuse of his staff was so widely known, um, abuse, misconduct, inappropriate behavior, um, ver not just verbal, but, you know, throwing things at people. Um, I spoke to the brother of that man who died by suicide, and his brother said that this, the car was not stopped when, you know, he was made to exit that car and, uh, you know, on the side of the road in an L.A. highway. And so... But he threw him out of the car. Yeah, it's it's like, I, I don't like, I think what people maybe have for years not talked enough about, what stories didn't we get from people driven out of the industry by that kind of behavior? And in the course of my reporting, I have connected to many people who stuck it out in the industry, but also to a large number of people who were driven out. And another example in my book, the executive Sasha Emerson, you know, a lot of what we see, it really is coming through the filter of the executives at that company and what they like and what they think will be commercially successful. So I go into the fact that, you know, HBO in the nineties and even beyond that was a very sort of bro culture, very macho, you know, big, you know, like big personalities, which in the industry is often code for, you know, jerks, uh, frankly, <laughs> abusive people. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, undoubtedly, HBO made a lot of good shows over the years. There's no question about that. Many of my top 10 lists had HBO programs on it. But Sasha Emerson was one of two women that Chris Albrecht is documented physically attacked at work related in work related situations. And he was just departed his most recent job within the industry, a very lucrative job within the industry last year not even a year ago so you know this idea that what what would sasha emerson have made what would um kevin graham queso the young man who worked for scott rudin and who later uh who died uh a few years ago um what would he have made he was you know i feel like i in a small way i got to know uh kevin through what his friends wrote about him, what they said about him. He just had an incredible compassion and life force. And it's incredibly moving and also heartbreaking to hear his brother say um, after Kevin had passed, well, you know, Kevin tried to protect those lower on the totem pole front, like be the, be the buffer for some of the abuse that Scott Rudin was dishing out. And yeah, you write that he would say that better me than them, basically. Exactly. And and that's the thing, you know, my book is in no way a condemnation of the industry because I still consume and I still love what I love. You know, I still watch TV and film, but I, I don't, th what's been heartening about the reaction is in the industry and in the audience, nobody wants people to be systematically and routinely harmed, damaged, or exploited financially, personally, professionally, mentally, or physically. No one wants those systematic harms and damaging behaviors to be part of what they have consumed. They don't see a need for it, and I don't see a need for it. And that's why the last third of my book is talking to people who say, look, yeah, you know what? The company should do more to train people to put limits on these behaviors to like oversee the workplaces in a more meaningful way to make sure they're healthy, respectful, professional, all that. But until that day comes when that kind of training support and limits are the norm, 
they've taken it on themselves to make the change, to be the change they want to see in the industry. And, you know, my, one of my favorite examples of one of my favorite people in the industry is Vince Gilligan, who I've known for 30 years. I met him when he was a junior writer on the X-Files. He has, I mean, yes, of course, we've all changed. We all have more gray hair and the like, but like he's been a lovely person who I'm sure has bad days or I'm sure, you know, occasionally loses his temper like any normal person. But what I routinely heard about Vince is that he creates a workplaces that are overall um, good places to work that people want to stay at. They don't want to leave their jobs. The only reason that people leave um, the workplace of Breaking Bad or that Peter Gould and Vince created for better call solves because they get their own like show or they get, you know, like another offer comes along. And that's something I think is some, every executive should do the following, go on the IMDB page and look at the turnover. Yes. If you're seeing a ton of turnover. There's a problem. Please don't tell me when I contact the studio, Oh, we didn't know. I just looked at IMDB and I could tell right away that maybe there were some questions that should be asked. You have a chapter on lost the show lost it's it's shocking. I mean, the aggressive, unapologetic racism and sexism that you write about and that you're reporting and that people, your sources tell you about is is pretty uh, unbelievable on this show. Um, how did it come to this? Yeah, I mean, on that show, um, and I, you know, Vanity Fair, um, I was fortunate that they published that chapter. And in the book version of that chapter, I go into even more, uh, give even more context about how, you know, I, I think that Lost was an extreme case, but I think it was an extreme case to some degree. It was, to, maybe to some degree, it wasn't that extreme in the sense that I do believe that it was absolutely in an appropriate workplace that was incredibly punishing for most, you know, if not all of the people that I talked to. It was an, a workplace that lasted for around about eight years. And if the people at the top did, or the people at the studio or network didn't want it to be that punishing of a workplace, they could have changed it. So there's, we've got to like talk about who's responsible for that. But unfortunately, this still happens. And that's why I thought it was still relevant to talk about Lost. If you've created a hit, the motivation for the studio and the network and maybe even other people around you in your employ is to look the other way and write off what's occurring as oh people you know sometimes you have to have a tough environment to make something great but what people were grouping under that heading of tough was just completely wildly inappropriate behavior that wouldn't pass muster at a bank or a grocery store or a hair salon, you know, like it just does not acceptable behavior. But um, because of this ongoing myth of creativity, well, we can't put limits on the creative people, especially if they're making us a lot of money. That's really what it is. I wish the studios sometimes would just come out and say it. Those people made us a lot of money and we don't want to make them angry by putting any limits on their behavior or we think they could make us a lot of money or get us awards or both. And so realistically, that's what's happening. They don't want to 
put limits on people that they believe will make money for the corporation and or bring prestige and some kind of halo of success to those executives. Or and that to company. make big money, you have to be make, bad somehow. <laughs> well, I honestly do think that these attitudes have been so deeply baked into the industry that there is an unspoken belief that I try to, again, cast light on it because we should talk about it. If you examine an unexamined assumption, maybe you can change that assumption and push it into a better direction. But I do think that a lot of people who work at studios and networks and at these companies that enable all of this stuff or don't enable it if they're changing, which I hope they are, I really think that the attitude exists that if somebody is just a nice person and gets and leads everybody in a way that makes sure that ensures that the work is done on time and everything is completed except in an acceptable way they can't be that creative if they're that if they're that even keeled and um patient and a good leader well they can't really truly be creative that's how deep this unexamined belief goes and what's so interesting in the lost example is that you as a critic can show that this type of toxicity and bullshit on on the sets or on the whole in the whole working environment actually affects the story the show yeah yeah and i i feel like i kind of came at that yeah i i came at that a little bit backwards cuz i just you know i would see it's not that sexual violence doesn't exist in our society it does but why do I keep seeing the most reductive and frankly cliched and frank at times offensive portrayals of, of sexual violence? You know, it's always the sexual violence. Oh no, what's happening here? And they show it and it's almost like a voyeuristic exploitative look at it and never about what it's like to be a survivor of that violence. And, you know, it's, it's these tropes and cliches on race, on gender, on sexual violence and things like that. I, I realized from, and I began doing my tough reporting on inclusion 20 years ago. And I would say, okay, well, here are the stats. There are almost no women in writer's rooms. If there is a woman, it's one token woman. And then later on, because there was at least some attention paid to that, if there's a person of color in this writer's room, there's one. And to this day, this is how it usually works. Only a few people in any production have power. You know, maybe the top executive on the film, the director of the film, maybe to some degree the writer, the producer of the film. Same in TV, there's only a few people that have power. So what a lot of people do is, oh, I've ticked the box. You know, I have one black writer in the room. By the way, that person is probably not the highest level person, didn't create the story, so has no power or I have one woman or maybe two women in the room um, or in on the set. And again, these people don't typically are not empowered to speak up. And if they do speak up about something that they find offensive or derogatory or, dif or just, you know, it should be, should be redone, should be revised. They often pace, face an incredible price. So um, I kept looking at these patterns of hiring and seeing that like, if we're only reflecting in, the, in, if the directors, the creators, the executive producers, the showrunner are typically coming from the small subset of the population, 
that subset of the population is a valid subset of the pop population, but the reference points, the belief systems are going to be so repetitive. So I did begin reporting on this stuff many years ago and about how it affected the storytelling because queer women were almost never in the stories that I watched. Um, if they were in the story, they would often get killed off. And, you know, like, it's just these patterns happen again and again and again. So, what you know, the last few years, I think people are more willing to have real conversations about, look, if this, if the DNA of who's creating this story does not reflect the lived experience of that community, ticking a box by having a couple of low level people who you don't listen to, you know, that's not fixing the problem right now, still today. Um, USC does a study every year. There are other organizations that do studies every year. Uh, most directors, more than 80% still are white. Most of those people are white men. So I think some of them are really talented, but the most influential people at the network, the studio, in the director's chair, and in the creator's position in TV and film, those that hasn't changed that much, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. And so what I think Hollywood's been doing for a while is, oh, but you know, we hired more in, in a more inclusive way. I'm like, that's great. Unless we are allowing a wide array of people to create the stories from the ground up, we are just going to keep replicating the same industry we've always had. And here's the thing. If you want to do that, go ahead and do that. But just send out a press release saying, we actually don't care about inclusion. We actually don't care about mistreatment or abuse. Don't send reporters like me or, you know, don't send the, the, the media or don't give speeches saying we care about these things. Your actions in many cases say that you don't. So just, I don't know, maybe admit it. And I had a similar feeling when I was reporting on Sleepy Hollow, which is less well-known than Lost. But in terms of race, um, you know, I think a lot of people in Hollywood like to think of themselves as having the, you know, having enlightened views on race and gender. Sleepy Hollow and Lost are demonstrations that a lot of places that I, I certainly I made assumptions about what was going on at, at some shows and some productions I've covered. And those assumptions turned out to be wrong. So I think we can continue the process that I think has been going on for a few years, which is not build up individuals as heroes to put on pedestals. Everyone in Hollywood is working at a job. It's not glamorous. I've been inside the homes of people who you think have a glamorous life and their homes are just normal homes. Like maybe I'm just not hanging out with the right successful <laughs> people, but, but the majority of people working in the industry are just trying to get by and it is a gig economy. And, you know, so much of what I'm writing about, it applies to the rest of America. Mm -hmm. Everyone is now more and more people are in a gig economy. Their income is precarious their healthcare is precarious. Yeah, They're worried about paying their bills. And Hollywood's no different and in fact has long been that way. And so I think in a way, Hollywood can be a cautionary tale in terms of the 
way that workers are treated routinely, but it can also be kind of an inspirational tale in that right now on the picket lines, people are marching for each other. And so many people have said, I think that the young people coming into this industry are the young people we need. You know, it's an incredibly cool array of people and viewpoints and cultures from all over. And they are literally putting their livelihoods on the line to say, we are not going to watch our incomes continue to drop. The amount of TV in the last 10 years, the amount of scripted TV aimed at American consumers tripled in the last 10 years and writer's income has gone down. So something's wrong with this picture. And I find it heartening and inspiring that people are willing to put their livelihoods on the line to say, no, we won't be treated that way. We won't be exploited in this way. And also the next generations coming after us need to have more robust support than the studios want to offer at this time. We still have, I mean, just this week is Ezra Miller and the flash and that whole thing and how they're coming that we have, I was just reading about more women coming out into the Cosby case. Um, where are we today in terms of these things? Why is this still happening so center stage? Because um, Hollywood has specialized in covering up abuse, demonizing the abused, and propping up the abusers and the exploiters for a hundred years. You know, Michael Shulman is a book as a writer who has a wonderful book out called Oscar Wars. The origin of the Oscars, the Academy Awards, the origin of that organization was to tamp down any potential labor organizing in the industry in the 20s and to distract the public from many high profile scandals that were enveloping Hollywood. So this has been going on for a hundred years and hence Warner Brothers shelving Batgirl, a film that stars a young woman of color with two incredibly noted and and, and well-regarded directors shelving the entire film and then rolling out The Flash, which has a star, which um, that person has a history of actions that put other people in harm's way and at risk, seriously at risk. And, you know, the studio's approach, and again, what Ezra Miller has done that is public knowledge. Um, what they are doing about that, I don't have that particular specific knowledge myself. But I know what the studio did, and the studio tried to memory hole it. And you know what gaslighters do and abusers do is they try to make you see a different reality and not see what's in front of you. And Warner Brothers, as a studio, tried to memory hole and gaslight the film going public and pretend like it didn't happen. And I mean, I don't know if that's the reason that the film did not do well, but this is the go-to move. This has been the go-to move for many decades. This is how the industry operates. And, you know, for the book that I just wrote, there was a lot of pushback, including from, you know, higher legal guns and certain people. So, so the move is always, you know, 
go after the person trying to bring these things to light. And that's been the routine. You know, there's a book that I have on my shelf that I'm looking at right now called The Fixers. This The studio has employed people to do this routinely in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. And this is just how they operate. It's going to take a lot of people trying really hard for a long time to change how the industry operates because so many people within the industry and even in the public have been conditioned to think that well, artists should be abusive, you know, when Evan Rachel Wood and several other brave women named um, Brian Warner, who uses the stage name, you know, Marilyn Manson as their alleged abuser, the pushback I got online, for, I did reporting around that, was, well, well, they should have expected that because that's a creative person. You were mentioning, you know, the writers, you know, how they stand up for this. We have all these brave women coming out and and, and not yeah. just women, of course, people abuse. Do you see this in terms of audiences? Are people like, we don't want to see these movies anymore? Do you see anything happening there that the audiences actually, that this will not pay off money-wise? I, I do think that that has, a, a, audiences have a role to play. And look, I definitely don't believe in subsets of certain fandoms, you know, going after you know, a black actor in Star Wars, like that's mm -hmm. terrible. Like we shouldn't weaponize uh, sort of like fandom energy, if you will, or, or fan energy. But I do think that um, the public has a role to play. And if they see the industry propping up someone who has shown no interest in making amends, atoning, making things right for the specific people that they harmed or for the communities that they harmed. Um, we have a lot of options as consumers. And I do think that there is a preference for, look, I, I would love to see the next season of that show, but if I find out that the actors on that set or the assistants or crew on that set was routinely abused, maybe I'll watch something else. Maybe I'll rewatch one of my favorite old shows. And there's so many absurd things in the book, like something called a toxicity nanny, um, <laughs> which, which is just absurd. As someone actually sort of shadowing someone to make sure they're not doing toxic things. I mean, that's just absurd. <laughs> I mean, there's so many times, honestly, that I want to laugh because I'm just like, how is this? Gone way beyond what, what decency is. <laughs> Sometimes you do have to laugh in a sort of dark way because you're like, how is this? You know, I mean... In 2022, I asked a showrunner, did you send links to pornography to your employees? And the response of that person through their lawyer was, well, um, some people wanted to see, and I won't say the actor's name, but an A-list actor's you know, uh, images that this person did not want released. It was a traumatic event. So in 2022, this person was offering this up as an excuse. And I'm like, I, and I put this in the text, in my opinion, this person was offering up this information as a defense of their actions. Mm -hmm. that, what? It's so, sometimes you're like, what, what planet are you on? Oh, Where this is something that you were saying to a journalist, you know, last year, I don't get it. But like, sometimes I'm like, well, I actually, you know, I have so many people in LA and New York that I care about relatives and friends 
and contacts and so forth, but I don't live in LA. And sometimes I'm like, I'm so glad I live 2000 miles away from like some <laughs> of the most deranged um, or, you know, uh, let's just say, uh, let's say confused. There are a lot of people <laughs> who are very confused about, you know, what proper behavior is and far too many of them are put in charge of things. Yeah. The whole like, yeah. oh, we'll have someone follow someone around on set. I'm like, for every person on a set, there are a thousand people that want that job, that would love that job and that would do that job without harming people. What yeah. if you just, I don't know, bounce that person and <laughs> take someone else, take someone else, use the sifting machine to sift for this person won't get us sued. I don't know. It's it's incredible. But finally, you've mentioned throughout many mm -hmm. things that you see as that could be done for change and things that are positive. But can and you mentioned Vince Gilligan. Can you give us yeah. a few examples here at the end of of places that really work and why they work and, and sets and showrunners and, and what they do? And it's um, not so hard <laughs> to do well, those good things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wrote about a show. There was a reboot of MacGyver. And um, there was not only um, the person in charge of that, Peter Lankoff, he had several shows and I talked to dozens of people who had negative experiences on those shows. He was released from his deal. And um, so a new showrunner was brought in at that time to the show MacGyver. And the line producer on that show was also let go. And I heard from multiple people on that set that it just was like a new day for them. And they just, you know, had a great time. And it's hard work, even if you're having a good time, you know, you really want to hold yourself up to a high creative standard. But you know, Melinda Shue Taylor, she worked on Lost, she worked on Medium, another show. Um, she worked on a number of shows where she endured, she did learn how to write. But also, as so many people have told me, I learned how not to be a leader from the examples that I saw, I got to sit in on, she was a co-showrunner or showrunner of shows called Nancy Drew and one called Tom Swift. They were kind of from that world of the Nancy Drew mysteries. There were a bunch mm -hmm. of shows that came out and she and her team, I talked to members of the team. I talked to people who worked for her. They lead with empathy, accountability, and transparency. And I think that that's a big one. Aline Brosh McKenna wrote the hit film, uh, The Devil Wears Prada. She's a director, creator, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which she created with Rachel Bloom. They had an on-site room for, you know, children and their child minders and people to go pump if they needed to do pumping or breastfeeding. And a big thing that they said to me that Melinda and Elaine said to me they both and other people have said this too. Look, just tell people what the rules are. We're going to give you specific dates on which scripts are due, revisions are due. Here are the hours of how we'll operate. I mean, just one thing. Leslie Linka Glotter is the president of the DGA, the Directors Guild of America. She's run film sets, TV sets. She's had so many credits that are of so many acclaimed projects. And she says, I think we got to look at reducing the hours. Because if people work 14 hours and then have an hour for lunch, that's a 14, 15, 16 hour days. Then you got to go home and come back. It's the hours are crazy. So people, you know, I talked to Aline about how 
in, in Melinda about how they try to be as transparent with people as possible. Here are the expectations. If you need to go to the doctor, just let us know. When people have information about what the expectations are, what the hours are, what the due dates are, what is expected of them on an attitude level, and then also on kind of a creative level, the morale is just through the roof. And, and the thing is, I also have Melinda in the book as someone who made a mistake. A black actor on one of her shows said, um, there isn't someone here on this set who knows to do how to do my hair correctly. And, you know, that's an awkward conversation because, you know, you don't want to look bad as a boss and you feel like you messed up. And the typical Hollywood style would be, I'm going to shut that person down, make them feel bad for having brought it up, maybe fire them, let their reps know they should, they're, they're now, you know, essentially can't work anymore on any of our productions like do, do all these abusive vindictive things and melinda said okay that's a problem let me work with the studio and make sure that we get that problem solved i'm accountable to you and i'm going to tell you every step of the way what we're doing and how we're doing it and then they changed the staff and there were they hired people who did know and so you know I, it's not like it's impossible but what about in terms of safe spaces to be able to talk about if you feel that you've been treated badly or even abused mm -hmm. or um, yeah. how do you do that so, to make I think going to the press is still often more safe than going to um, HR. Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, the studio HR works for the studio. They know where their paycheck is coming from. And so what happens is if you have an executive who actually wants HR to do its job correctly, then it might, but you're, you're rolling the dice. You don't know. There's an organization called the Hollywood commission that I think has been talking about unveiling an online reporting portal that would preserve people's anonymity if necessary, allow people to repeat and allow for repeat offenders across multiple studios and jobs to be tracked if you will and for something to be done about that because so many people use the phrase to me like moving abusive priests from one parish to another that's something that still happens in the industry the problem with the hollywood commission is that they said it would come out in 2021 it didn't i asked them in 2022 multiple times where is it they said it would be in beta testing at the end of last year i do not know if that happened i'm certainly not aware of that happening and now we're in the middle of 2023 two years after they said they would unveil it and it's still not there. And this would be a portal for anyone in the industry and it would not be owned by any specific studio. So you would feel, I think workers would feel more um, empowered by that kind of situation because I, I've talked to so many people who had terrible experiences with studio HR. So I actually, uh, at some point when I get a moment uh, to do so, I'd like to circle back with the Hollywood Commission and say, this portal that you've talked about, where is it? Mm -hmm. Because I think that it does need to be something that's robustly supported. And the day that you report for work on set or in an office or in a production, you have a sheet with all the numbers you can call and the websites and like you, you you're very aware of what your resources are for reporting. And, you know, the, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, SAG, and uh, Women in Film was another organization. They all have hotlines and 
portals and things of that nature. So those things can help. But I do think that there absolutely needs to be a much more robust, supported, advertised, and helpful reporting central location, especially because, you know, it's not, I, I understand that people may feel a sense of accomplishment when they finally got rid of the director on that show that had been abusing people or the DP or whatever, or the actor, but those people are going to turn up elsewhere because there's nowhere, you know, probably the studios do know on mm -hmm. some sort of back channel basis, but they can officially plead ignorance. Oh, we didn't know. And that is what leads to some people just getting a million and one chances and all the, and this is what happens too often with HR or with the executives doing the hiring. Oh, he said he's going to stop or she said she's not going to be like that anymore. Oh, okay, cool. I'm a reporter. What corroboration do you have for that? Someone's just telling you what you want to hear. That's not good enough. You need more proof than that. But Hollywood too often has gone on, gone around, you know, with, as, as I call it, with the magical thinking filters turned on, you know? Oh, it'll be fine. No, you can't just they say that. sorry. Or they said that she said she was sorry. Okay. I talked to a rabbi in my book about a five-step plan of truly making amends and changing and altering one's behavior and in, in the footprint you leave in the world, so to speak. Of those five steps, saying you're sorry is number four. There's a lot of other things that go into it, but how many times have we seen a celebrity say, oh, well, you know, I sought counseling and they've had counseling for what, three weeks? Or they did a juice cleanse? Or they got <laughs> I mean, like, come on, man. Like, no, that's not, that's nonsense town. It doesn't work. Well, Maureen, your book really opens the curtain and you have done this for us um, so that we can get a picture of what's going on. And maybe just by being able to see what's going on, we can make some choices in what we're watching and how we want things to be. So I thank you very much for that book. And I thank you so much for your time with me. Thank you. I'm so pleased to have been able to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much to Maureen Ryan. Her book is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. And it's available now. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Pop Culture Confidential is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. See you next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.